Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Welcome to The Melting Pot. I am your host, Dominic Monkhouse, and today I'm in conversation with and learning from Rod Banner. I've known Rod for a number of years. He took on and grew a non-conference called Snowball, which is an opportunity for 75 VCs, tech startups, and other people who are sort of in and around the tech space to get together every year for a few days in some ski resort in Austria or Italy or France or Germany or wherever we go, ski and share ideas about the future and work out how we can help one another. But that's not today's conversation, although Rod does mention one of our fellow Snowball members, Martin Fincham, and we reference his new book about learning to be a Ned. But Rod sold his advertising agency to WPP, and then he went networking, which I guess is why Tech City Insider has him on their top 100 list and Fresh Business Thinking Power is in their top 100, Smith & Williamson's Power 100 and made GQ's list of the 100 most connected men in Britain. Testament to when Rod puts his mind to something, he goes all in and does it. He also is currently the founder of a sort of collective of brains that help technology firms become more agile and relevant called 3LA and 3LA stands for three letter acronym. And he's also the founder at a thing called joytech.org towards the end. He references an event he's holding in June. So check out joytech.org as well. Today, what we're finding out is some ruminations on what he would have done differently if he'd had his time again. So, you know, being more deliberate about how to create a plural life that he's not a early stage tech startup investor, how to live a joyful life. And then we talk sort of in depth and with a little bit of detail around some of the things he's been doing whilst during lockdown, a project that he's been working on for a high fashion brand to try and link high fashion to consumers and what that might look like, how to get rid of a sale. So I don't know if you're Gucci and then your products end up on sale, that's the destruction of your brand rather than a creation and emanation of your brand. So we talk a bit about how Rod has sort of been reimagining high fashion and technology and the coming together of that. And so a wide ranging conversation with Rod Banner. I'm sure you'll enjoy as much as I did. My name's Rod Banner. My background is long. (laughs) It's one of the benefits of being a seasoned professional or just an old git. Um, But I started off in marketing. I worked in advertising when advertising was a profession and uh, it had a lot more respect and reverence than it probably does now. Sorry, Mark Reed and others, but I I think it's kind of lost its seat at the board. It had 
some degree of authority, uh, totally unworthy, but nevertheless did. And it was a, a career that I'd really wanted to get into because I was creative and I was an economist, basically. So that advertising was a kind of fusion between the two. And I worked in advertising. I worked in new product development from time to time. This takes you, takes you back. But the glorious moments of my early advertising career worked on the launch of Bailey's Irish Cream, which turned out well um, and uh, certainly is responsible for a lot of hangovers, certainly in those days in northern clubs um, <laughs> where, we, where we primed um, middle-aged ladies with Bailey's Irish Cream uh, who, who just couldn't get enough of it. And then the other, the other two glorious moments were I was responsible for the launch of the VHS video standard. Most people who worked on that are probably dead now, but uh, that was quite entertaining in as much as uh, it, it triumphed over the one that I had, which was Betamax, largely due to uh, channel management and pornography. <laughs> and uh, the other thing was I worked on Casio and the launch of Casio watches. So you can see I'm not exactly a teenager uh, but uh, I enjoyed all of those, and the common thread between them, obviously, um, alcohol, uh, which which probably fueled a lot of my early life. I've, I'm teetotal now; I don't drink only because I just can't tolerate the stuff. But um, it certainly fueled my early life. And the other two were technology, and so technology I found fascinating. It drew me to it. I liked owning it and fiddling with it. I liked taking it apart and trying to understand it. And I believed that most of my encounters with technology were through passion and love. I just wanted to share my joy of technology with the rest of the world. So I would be always the person explaining how to use the VHS recorder in the day that was the most complicated thing in someone's home and uh, unblock the printer when printers came in. The printers largely became another stalwart of my life. So what I haven't told you is at some point in my life was I started an agency of my own rather than working for the big ones. And that agency was completely focused on technology. So all our clients were tech clients. And I loved the tech clients. They were, for the most part, West Coast American companies. So they were they, they were populated by cool people who had this reckless view of the world as just a playground that they could change and uh, disrupt massively with whatever it was that they were launching. And during the rise of that business, I mean, I was just in the right place at the right time. And we started off selling 9,600 board modems and, and, and um, <laughs> dot matrix printers, you know, and then suddenly, boom, the internet happened, and and that was that was just an amazing ride for us. We we landed a big piece of business called Cisco Cisco Systems, which nobody knew about when we landed. We won that business responding to a fax brief. <laughs> it's a true story, and um, it was it was one of those journeys that was so instrumental to my understanding of the internet and our explosion as a company. Uh, I mean, literally, it was a nothing company. We launched it into Europe. And at one point, just at the end of the dot-com boom, it was the biggest business by market cap in the world. It, um, it just beat out Exxon or some 
such company. It's not the biggest company in the world, although their infrastructure is still in place. But it's actually, I saw the other day, um, the best place to work in the world uh, by many metrics. So they're still around. And the other bit of extraordinary good luck was we we were agency of record for Google. Um, our great friend of mine, Kate Burns, um, who was the first employee out, outside the US for Google, uh, appointed us as agency of record. And, and we went through that journey too, where if you remember, search was a term that no one really understood. You know, there's a whole taxonomy, a lexicon of new, evolving, disruptive thought uh, around search marketing or, or really how to change buying and selling completely upend it. And, and again, these two companies were, were led by pioneers. You know, one could say nut jobs. They were, they were people who just did not understand anything like no or timelines. It, it, you just had to make stuff happen. And I was infected with that enthusiasm and remain so even in my dotage. Thinking back, you know, I, if I think about now, you know, sort of behavioral science, was the advertising you were doing, was it scientific or was it completely based on your creative hunch? And, and is it then, was it then, you know, you, you made as many mistakes as you got, as you had wins? Well, here's why I still um, drawn to technology marketing, because as you know, and I think we knew we didn't necessarily study the science of communications perhaps as much as we could have or should have at the time. But most every decision somebody makes is driven by emotional response. That's that's where it all comes. But it's no, the, we, we we come festooned with prejudices and and predilections, and we respond emotionally, and then we post-rationalize the decisions that we take. So that has largely escaped the purview of the tech industry when they were marketing. It's like, how many features, feeds, feeds, and functions can you cram into an ad? Well, but it seems it seems that that's still the case. It's just like, here's, here's, here's an ad, and it's just like, here's all of our widgets, none of which are emotional at all. Well, of course, if you're a VC and you're paying people to develop all those speeds, feeds, and functions, then obviously the more you can trophy, the, the happier everyone is, although that's not how people buy them. And so there is this awkward dissonance between how much you cram in and then also how much you really understand about the person you're trying to sell to. So obviously, uh, this is the, bit that, the other bit that I love which is taking complex technology and acting a bit like a babel fish, being able to sort of translate, what does all this mean for me? Or, you know, somebody else who has no understanding of the significance of the technology, but could realize that if you explain this could seriously change how they view, I don't know, their technology security or how it could transform the way they manage their money or ensure their home. The technology is not the issue. And in fact, there's very few people who understand technology. I love that that notion that I think it's a TED talk where where there are two objects, one of which is a flint hammer, and it's literally a carved piece of flint, and the other one is a Bluetooth mouse. And they look kind of the same size and, and the same sort of thing, but actually no one on planet Earth understands how uh, that Bluetooth mouse is actually created. Because 
there's so many technologies involved in it from little pieces of plastic, glass, Bluetooth technology, Teflon that covers the bottom. I mean, I'm not really that boned up on Bluetooth mice, but you can understand the technological um, multiplexity um, is, is such that no one individual can grasp the whole thing. Whereas a flint hammer, you can figure out what to do with it and how to make it. So technology requires explanation, but using the same parallel, people want to know what a Bluetooth mouth does, not how it's made and what little nuances of features and functions it can provide. Where, where it would bring joy to their lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how it would improve their lives, save them time, do something useful. How did you go about making Cisco an emotional purchase? Uh, well, it was it was simple because actually everything that Cisco did laddered up to the fact that they were actually building the internet. I mean that that was they were the infrastructure providers behind everything because people weren't making routers. You know, Huawei didn't exist. You know, if you were a telco and you wanted to provide some kind of internet, well, you you Dominic, if anybody would know more about this than anybody anybody else, but you would end up buying stuff from them. And then, obviously, later on, other people started to figure out what they were doing. But there were so many innovative things that uh, Cisco did, um, many of which have been, I, I, I hasten to uh, add that what I'm about to say might get you or me into legal deep water, but many of those features and functions were then flagrantly stolen by companies like Huawei. And everyone who complains that Huawei has this inner technology that can track where the traffic's going and how to manage it should look at what Cisco built before because Cisco built exactly the same thing, except I suspect that all the Cisco data goes straight into the Pentagon. <laughs> and well, well <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Let, let me say uh, that was a, an allegation without substance. So. <laughs> I always think if they're... I just feel as if they're reading my emails, if they could just mark the ones that aren't relevant red. Yes. You help some tech businesses that we've heard of understand how to capture emotion in the minds of the potential purchasers. What drives you now? I think the, the great bliss of having, a, having an exit behind you, or two or three if you're lucky, my business partner and I used to talk about an acronym called FIM. And uh, the two last letters stand for it and money. So you can figure out what the F stands for. But I think the point is that Money is a real challenge for all of us. If we got, you can never earn enough of the, this, this stuff, really, especially if you've got family and people to provide for. But there does come a point where you don't necessarily have to worry about it quite as much as, as other people do um, who haven't had that good fortune. So I suppose I, I exited with, with FIM. And I had the opportunity to kind of look at what I wanted to do. And I was puzzled. I was perplexed. I didn't really know what to do. And then I fell into a trap, which I, I, I suggest is worth sharing here, largely to stop other people falling in the same one. And it was that people who look at you and think you're successful want a bit of that. And they come at you with offers, uh, join our board, and it's flattering, to be honest. You've got nothing else to do except go to lunch with a few people and read a few books. And you think, well, okay, maybe I can squeeze that into my non-hectic schedule. And so I did not do what I probably would have done now. And what, by the way, Martin Fincham is advocating in his new book, 
about NEDS, which I heartily recommend, which is go out and seek a plural life. Go and find the companies that you really want to work for rather than just respond to the people who are flattering you into participation. So, um, yeah, I, I flailed a little. And I also made another huge mistake, which was knowing tech and knowing marketing. I thought I could perhaps own a portfolio where those two things cross over. So technology that powers marketing looked to me like a real winner. Mm -hmm. In my agency, we partnered with a lot of the companies who were building that stuff and we liked using it. So I thought, well, I'll invest in companies doing that. And whilst I wasn't wrong in as much as it proved to be a winner, I was wrong in thinking that uh, seed stage companies could be triumphant when in fact almost all the money has gone to the facebook and google empires and the little companies are all being squished so these are the two mistakes i made but then things started to sort of settle down a little and i i saw opportunities i mean my life now is really around i do sit on a few boards and i continue to consult in areas that i find interesting so for the last couple of years, I've done a lot of work in customer loyalty. I love the idea of customer loyalty. I love the idea of technology that powers customer loyalty and how to make customer um, loyalty systems really work. Because for the most part, they really don't. Um, I don't know if you're aware of that industry, probably are, you're so clever. <laughs> but things like you know, air miles. I feel sure that Dominic Monkhouse has got enough air miles to fly to the moon and back. Most of us do, but most of us find it very difficult to deploy them because it's so difficult. You you know, you try and spend them here, you can't, or you whether it be the pandemic, I know, but well the beauty is that BA now fly out of Southampton. And so I went and spent all of mine on future future family vacations from Southampton. Well, you're unusual. But anyway, the point is Inside those businesses like BA, they spend more money on the technology that powers those systems of rewards than the actual value of the rewards. So, and they're terrible. The, te the technology is terrible. So I, I'm trying to work out how we could revolutionize the whole notion of rewards. The company that I've been working with, in, it's a Canadian company that does a lot in travel and hospitality. Um, gave me this amazingly sort of free-ranging brief to go and play, recognizing that travel and hospitality was in the doldrums, to say the least, during the pandemic. So I have been exploring for probably the last eight months the fashion sector. Uh -huh. Now, I know I should be 23 and probably female or transgender to, to really embrace the fashion industry properly, but I've thoroughly loved my embrace of the fashion industry. It's it's much like the ad industry was in its heyday, filled with magnificent egos, the most incredibly creative people, but probably a bit like the ad industry in its heyday, uh, many of the fashion brands are really not run commercially uh, very well. And uh, if you think of a fashion brand I think you're wearing a North Face top there. Mm -hmm. But if you think of most fashion brands, probably a little higher end than that. Typically, <laughs> sorry, sorry, that wasn't, that wasn't meant to be rude. 
I was meaning in terms of you know high-end luxury as opposed to practical and very good. Uh-huh. The, you, you tend to find products are launched at shows or seasonally at very high prices. In very short order, those products are on sale at much more discounted prices. So a man like yourself who understands how to build brands would realize that this is brand suicide. If you're trying to create a luxury brand at a high price point and then you're prepared to undercut yourself within weeks, then customers just go, well, I'm not going to buy it at full price. I'm going to wait for the sale, which is what they all do. So there's this kind of dissonance between loyalty, where a loyal customer should be the first person to get the product at the best price, to this kind of crackers pricing model that just drives people away from being loyal to the brands. And so we built this amazing concept where there are no sales. And essentially, the the core proposition uses a token rather than a reward point. And the token has a dynamic value. If you're a loyal customer, you can gain access to products at the beginning of their life at an option price. And the option price is something that's not guaranteed, but it gives you the option to get such a product later on in its life, assuming uh, that there is stuff in your geo and in your size that you've indicated you might want, but weren't prepared to pay full price. And this is dynamic, constantly dynamic shifting pricing brings about a degree of gamification, engagement. At some point, you know, I'm very happy to present this to you, but I, I'm so excited by it because whenever I present it to people in the fashion industry, they go, yeah. And then there's obviously the hurdles of adoption, which I'm kind of used to. My West Coast Americans would say, that's a trivial point. Just, just keep on pushing on. So I'm keeping on pushing on. So that's where I've squandered or wasted or enjoyed the last few months. And then I'm working with another Canadian company actually on an interactive video platform, a bit like sort of Vimeo YouTube, where you upload your videos in the same way that you would on those two platforms. But then through a web interface, you can drop in a little sort of functional elements. They could be buttons or links. So essentially I'm watching a video and then up come three buttons that could drive the story in three different directions, or I could um, indicate that a product was for sale and I could click to buy it. All of this done without any apps or extensions or complex hardware. You can drive it from your phone or just a regular laptop. This very early stage, but it's loads of fun. And uh, again, it's been doing the head in. And the, the fashion thing, you've got the ability for the fashion brands to understand who their potential purchasers are, because that's one of the challenges is you just have no idea who your customers are or might be. So you've got no way to reach them. So you create, you're creating a community and it's sort of when it's gone, it's gone because you're not driving volume. You're just saying this is available in a particular size in a particular location and this is the price and the price moves over time. Explaining the concept a little more fully, the idea is that you encourage people to sign up as a, as a loyal customer. And in order to encourage them to do that, obviously, we've created a collection of baubles to some extent. Um, and those would be perfectly normal things that you can find in fashion brands. But 
I've recognized that they're creating a lot of virtual shows. They'll put on a virtual show and then it just pops up on YouTube and people look at the stuff and they see a lot of pretty models and, and, and beautiful clothes parading around in deserts and, and athletic stadiums and all sorts of things to show the clothes. But there are two fundamental flaws with this model. One is many of those clothes are never manufactured. They're a showcase for what might happen six months down the line. So even though consumers will watch them, there's a sense of frustration that they can't actually own anything that they really like. They have to wait for it. So this is the first fundamental problem. Rather than even take indications that people are interested in that top or that dress or whatever, they just play these things out into the real world. The other thing is the creative directors of lots of fashion houses who are fascinating people are so isolated from their customers. They'll come on at the end of a show, take a bow, get lots of applause, and then piss off, disappear. No one gets to speak with them. And they never talk about what's coming, the next season, the shapes, colors, sizes, fastenings, what's inspiring them. And yet there's this hunger from the consumers to be involved, to, to show how much they love that brand. So Firstly, getting people to, to, to sign up and be part of these shows to meet with those um, creative directors. And the other one is the, the, the advocates, the supermodels who wear the products, who have more followers than the brands. Getting those people involved in these kinds of conversations is such an opportunity for marketing. The models get paid squat to, to do runway. They get, obviously, they get the exposure and they get lots of trinkets but actually they should be being paid to be advocates but not being contrived to be advocates the the, the passion you see in in some of these you know beautiful people for the brand is just lost somehow so that gets people sucked into the vortex and then what we say is in order to transact with us we want you to transact via our tokens. So you invest money in tokens. Uh, it doesn't have to be a lot. You could even take a subscription into the tokens. Uh, you know, if you're a salaried person on a relatively low salary, but you love Gucci, you might put you know twenty dollars a month or something in to to give you a token base. Why would they bother? Because we pay interest. We can afford to pay interest because the money in stays in. It can only go out via product, and that means we've bought, essentially, they've bought our margin at the outset. And then all the pricing in tokens is either buy it now price, that essentially the retail price with a trivial discount because you're a loyal customer, or the option price, which is a significant discount, but no proof that you're going to actually get it. The options might not vest. And so, those prices fluctuate, and they fluctuate based on stock, demand, and sizes too. That's the other thing that really blew my mind. I always thought that, particularly in women's fashion, where sizes quite varied, and and you know women are quite varied in size too, you always got the impression that the middle sizes would sell and the tiny sizes and the large sizes would stick. But in fact, that's one of the outcomes. But there's another outcome where actually 
the large and minute sizes are the ones that people can't actually get because no one manufactures enough of them. So the idea here is that we would have data about what people wanted ahead of manufacture so that we could tailor the manufacturing to the demand, which would mean that we wouldn't have to landfill or, or scrap product. We'd have a much tighter system. And we could obviously then determine from taste, colors, shapes, um, forms they might choose so that we could promote those to them and tantalize them with incentive pricing. I think it sounds fascinating. It's another one of those digital transformation of an of an entire industry yeah you know it's that it's that here we are there was no way we could do this before now the technology would allow us to do this why would we not want to own the customer in my head i've got this parallel it's it's not a fashion one at all it's lego went direct and they worried about competing with the channel but then they realized that you might be rebuilding that model and you've missed a bit or you might be building something that nobody's built before and you need a special part. Well, you couldn't go to the channel for that. You'd have to go direct. And so now all of a sudden you've got these super fans. Or I remember chatting to the guys at Rafa, you know, the cycling clothing brand. Yes, brilliant brand. Right. And so they were saying that every time they launch a, I don't know, a season or whatever, a, a range, they, they're super fans by every single item in the entire range. So then they have this sort of secret perk for those super fans because they know who they are. And, uh, you know, just, you know, so there's then this community of super fans who are prepared to buy on day one at full price. Well, I think any fashion brand that's not going DTC or direct to consumer, they're dead. It's going to go. And, and there are lots of those intermediaries, those sort of detailing brands that are doing really well right now. But I sense it's, it's just a, an evolution. Everyone wants, obviously, to have that adrenaline rush of instant gratification. You, you know, I see it, I want it, I want it now, I want it tomorrow, I'll pay extra to get it today. I still believe will exist. But if you're a true fan of a brand and you're really a valued customer, one that really has some customer lifetime in you, then you want to build the relationship much more tightly with the originators of the product. And, and that's the bit that interests me. Customer lifetime value should be lifetime. If you lose faith in a brand, it's largely because they've messed up, I, I would argue. You know, they've told a big fat lie or they've misrepresented a product or something. But if you continue to strive to do your best as a brand and serve a need that a customer has, you should be able to keep them forever. That's what marketing should be. We were chatting before we were recording about demand generation and content. Where does that fit with this model? Is, is, that, is the show the content? Perhaps I should voice my prejudices around the sector, first of all. I mean, performance marketing, I, I liken to squeezing a lemon. Whilst there's juice in the lemon, there's always, if you squeeze it harder, a way of getting just a few more drops out. And performance marketing is just like that. What nobody ever measures in performance marketing, which is uh, aka irritating the shit out of a customer, until they do something that you want them to do. No one ever really understands how the customer feels as a direct result of it. I've been saying this for a long time, probably so long that maybe I'm, I'm wrong, but I have always maintained that 
classical advertising, the stuff that interrupts you when you're trying to do something else is history. And yet it's still a big business, but it, it still irritates me. And it irritates a lots of people. And you see the rise of Netflix and companies that are not ad sustained. And you sort of hope that advertising will go away. It probably will never go away. But I do not believe that the relationship that a brand has with its customers can be in any way improved by irritating them, interrupting them, or pressing them to do something that they had no interest in doing. The other thing about content that I, I think informs the way I think is that there was a time when media could reach huge numbers of people just straight out of the gate. You could advertise and you could reach mi many, many millions of people. And there are still moments like you know, the Super Bowl and places where you can do that. But for the most part, we've all gone our separate ways. The synchronicity of media exposure has gone. And we consume things like this is a podcast. Uh, people will consume this as and when they choose. And it's great. But actually, it changes the way content marketing should work too, because you should be able to discover content that informs you or satisfies your curiosity in a way that really is helpful and supportive rather than just content jumping out of um, something that you're already engaged with and just hitting you over the head with a message that you don't want. It's funny, I was doing some remodeling in the house and I moved the TV and the room it's now in doesn't have a coax cable, but I don't care. So the TV keeps telling me it's not tuned in, but I can't remember the last time I watched live terrestrial TV on it anyway. So I don't care. I, you know, I mean, I, I keep reading stats about how still the majority of people in the UK watch, consume TV on a TV from an aerial and, and, you know, see adverts. I can't remember the last time I saw an advert. I would suspect that you have an Instagram profile, probably. I do. I see, I see a lot of inst interruptions on Instagram. Yep. And in fact, have actually bought things from Instagram adverts. Yeah. And a lot of us have and live to regret them. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Uh, we digress. But I, I suppose that, you know, performance marketing is not the way to build a brand. It's the way to keep your shareholders happy. And uh, I, I think the, the problem with the whole industry is that it sucked up the, the data modeling, the, you know, the, the efficiencies that performance marketing brought to marketing. But ultimately, marketing is about understanding customers' problems and shaping products and services in such a way that those problems are solved by them. <laughs> it's funny because I, I work mostly with tech firms and I would say, uh, you know, we were talking earlier at the beginning around tech firms still thinking about widgets. And I would say most of the clients that we work with, when we start working with them, we say, okay, who's your customer and why do they buy from you? And they try to answer the question and then they realize they actually don't know. They don't know why. They bought our product and not a competitor's product. They, they just have absolutely no idea. Like it might be we came along at the right point or it might be a referral or it might be a Google search. They just have no idea. So when they come to say, we'd like to sell more of what we do. I completely echo that. 
I, I see it a lot. And I think the other thing, working with early stage, which I, I did in my sort of hiatus moments post-sale, um, the, the thing that I, I would say a, a lot of early stage businesses are an idea that hasn't really been tested, but has gone straight into execution. So I think if I were to try to define the things that I like doing now and the things that I think I'm good at doing now, it's much more around what I consider to be proposition design. So in the old days, your advertising and your marketing was a bit like lipstick or makeup that you'd put on whatever it was that you had. And in some cases, that might have been a pig. Um, but if your makeup was really good, then people would still think that was fine. Now, increasingly with social media and, and, and just the sheer number of startups and apps and so forth, um, we now tend to look a little bit more uh, at what other people are saying and what the truth is behind the lipstick. And we recognize that there are a lot of pigs out there. And so if you're invested in a pig, and I have been, um, the, the, you're encouraging people to find new ways of selling more, hence the rise of performance marketing. If the truth is you've got a great business proposition and one that resonates easily with customers, they, they go, yeah, that's what I need. Like, you know, whether you like Uber or Airbnb, they actually resonate with customers because they solve problems that hadn't been solved before. That's the point where it doesn't need marketing in the old accepted sense of advertising because social media is the media. And we recommend to our friends, we feel smug when we tell them how we're using whatever new function of service industry. And people just go and follow our, follow our leads, you know. I was speaking to a CEO who we work with in Spain a couple of weeks ago and we'd done some we'd helped them refine their proposition and I said so how's it going and he said oh we're growing 20% a week now I think we'll grow 100% in June and I think we'll probably grow 100% in July and then we might run out of resources and that was it there's just like the proposition wasn't quite right they changed it they tweaked it the ceo jumped on the phone and spoke to some customers so he wasn't trusting the interface that his team were having with customers because he owns the proposition he's the ceo and um poof they're away so you know great for them it's a great point you make dominic actually how many ceos talk to customers i've worked with lots of ceos who are so ego driven that they believe they're right and that customers are, shouldn't be considered they don't know what they're talking about they'll love what we met, what we build when we finish it versus those people who are prepared to share their ideas with prospects and customers who help shape the stuff it doesn't mean to say that they always get it and that they will always buy it but the feedback that you get from people whose money you're trying to take has got to be the best feedback there is well, I was talking to Steve Blank, and he said, never trust a CEO of a software development company that can't demo his own software. It's in the same vein. Now. It's, you know, at the point where he, it's all too complicated for the CEO, <laughs> then they might have made some mistakes along the way. Then. Rod, what is, it, what is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? Oh, God, that's a really, that's a deep and meaningful question, isn't it? I think the one thing that I have recognized it recently 
is that life is short and it gets shorter every day and that there's nothing wrong with living a joyful life. I genuinely believe that we often prioritize other things in our life, like it might be the pursuit of money or trinkets. We don't necessarily sort of ask ourselves the question, what brings us joy and and therefore how can we do more of that? And I, I think the one piece that has come to me later in life is uh, just how important that is and how important it is for the people that I love and care for and to be honest society at large so i think the thing that i have learned that would have reshaped my life probably more is that there's nothing wrong with the pursuit of joy i'm not suggesting at all costs you still have to pay a mortgage or have a mortgage or whatever it is but actually prioritizing the things that bring you joy usually brings with it a lot of other benefits I know it's that smug, middle-class, middle-aged man's advice to young men, follow your heart. And the young guy is going, well, hang on a minute, it's easy for you to say. You're trinketed up, forgive me. But um, I, I still would suggest that if there are two equally well-paying op- options and one of them you just feel in your heart you're going to enjoy more, then don't worry too much about anything else because that joy will bring you energy it will bring you creativity it will bring you friendship and that's the essence of life yeah don't do things you don't enjoy just for the money yeah yeah just make you miserable well you said it in a way that i feel i've heard many times i was trying to wrap it in probably a bit bit more colorful language (laughs) (laughs) in a sense the opposite of that has always been my inspiration because i'm not sure that my father enjoyed, well, it, to me, didn't seem to enjoy the last 20 years of his working life. Mm. And, and I just thought, I'm never going to do that. I'd rather have less money and more joy. Yeah, sure. You know, because when, tra- when you travel the world, you meet people all the time who seem to be, from a wealth perspective, impoverished, but, you know, their cup is overflowing with joy and humanity. So good advice. Um, what books you've you said you've spent uh you've spent lockdown walking the dog and listening on audio and also reading the odd book what um what should people pick up or even further back in time you know are there some things that have had an impact on you that people should read uh well the the list is very long so i, I don't need to go back in time there are one or two that i would love to just plug simply because they're really high up there in my consciousness right now. Uh, There's a great uh, Stanford professor called Jonathan Haidt who knocks out books all the time, and they're all amazing books. I read his book, The Happiness Hypothesis, way before COVID and and loved it. Um, um, And then more recently, The Coddling of the American Mind, which is largely about what he calls the iGen, the generation of young people, not millennials, but younger, who grew up in the in the shadow or, or the comfort of the iPhone. And it's an extraordinary, beautifully researched, it's two years of academic research, he and his, his co-writer, about how young people have been brought up in safety 
conscious world, and now who, uh, uh, by the time they reach campuses or uh, universities, uh, are finding it impossible to tolerate uh, opinions coming from people with whom they disagree. And it's it's a brilliant book. Uh, you don't need to be young. You don't need to have kids. You just need to recognize what where society has really gone wrong. And as a parent, I certainly feel I've overly protected my children, not that they would agree. The other, well, actually, Scott Galloway's great book, uh, Post-Corona, is uh, another genius, very readable ride through what's coming and why the world isn't going to be as bleak as it has been. I love Scott Galloway's writing. Then Maria Muzzicato's fantastic book on the new economy. I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of the book, but it, she's she's another academic talking a lot about irritating. I can't remember this, but uh, it'll be in the speaking notes, I'm sure. It's a book largely drawing parallels with the space race. The United States invested hugely in its mission to the moon, and it had a plan. And it set out a plan in a very simple visionary goal. And then all the technology that came was single-mindedly focused on achieving that plan. And she's suggesting that governments need to have more plans rather than whinging at each other or moaning that they haven't got enough money. And she's also, because she's an economist and you know, us economists recognize that economy being an economist, by the way, is not it's not a science, people. It's it's a creative and rather lightweight exercise in blind faith, really. Her thesis is that it's perfectly okay to print money like we're all doing, like it's going out of style, if that money is deployed to the efficiency of the economy. So rather than just hand it out to people to go and you know spend on gambling or buy burgers, if that money is going into infrastructure, education, things that really improve the eff- efficiency of the economy, then that money will be well spent. And at the re- interest rates that we're paying to borrow money, we should be borrowing a lot more of it. So that's very positive. But then probably um, the 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 other one that I'm totally in love with, and this is the one I'm I'm really going to plug, is Narina Hurt's book called The Lonely Century, which I think was the best book I read in 2020. And the other reason that I'm so excited to be able to say this is that I'm actually interviewing Narina Hertz on joytech.org's platform on the 30th of June. And anybody who's listening to this, if it goes out before the 30th of June, is very welcome to join our, our Zoom conversation with Narina. But she is another academic genius uh, broadcaster. Um, she even had a TV show, I think, in the US. She has analyzed what's gone wonky in our society and why even though we're so well connected and we we live right next door to each other we are so disconnected from each other and how we are losing the ability to even speak with one another and how tragic those consequences are for society at large it's a great book she talks about japanese middle-aged women committing crimes so that they can find themselves in jail in order to find companionship. Talks about people in New York who are spending money to uh, services that provide them with friends. You know, I mean, there's so much going on. And yet, this book is not just a gloomy book. It's also filled with ideas that could help the world at large and us as individuals 
have a more connected and more satisfying and more joyful life. It's funny, isn't it? They, they living in London or living in the countryside, I run. And when I'm out running, if I'm running, I was in Bath at the weekend, so I'm out running in Bath, you know, you say hello to people. You run in London, you say hello to people. They react as if you physically slapped them. It's like I was going, I wasn't expecting to have to say hello to anybody. You know, it's just, it's just different. People's expectations are different, aren't they? You know, you're sort of ambling, ambling along through the countryside. You might talk to somebody. Pre-COVID, at least they didn't jump in a hedge to avoid you. <laughs> traded pleasantries with them. Now people think you've got the plague. Yeah, maybe. The government scared everybody witless. But, Rod, that's absolutely brilliant. I love getting book recommendations and post-corona you'd recommended to me before and also lonely century but i haven't got around to reading that one yet post-corona i have read uh but i will get these do you know the copy of martin fincham's book or do we need to go and dig that out as well uh martin fincham's book is actually uh yeah the the ned book is really cracker of course i will happily plug it as many times as possible because he's a big man and he, he can get quite angry um <laughs> but it's called the diary of a novice ned and it is on kindle it's only 70 odd pages of course on kindle that's always depends on how big the print is but it's not it's not too long you can bang it out in an afternoon but it, you know you're a ned you 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 would recognize that it doesn't usually come with a manual or any training and i think quite often people just want to have you on their list of board members just because they feel it, they can swank about it or, or or not in my case obviously but in yours <laughs> The thing that I've learned and that he really rams home is how important it is to have a clear understanding on both sides of the equation as to what you're there for and what you're trying to accomplish together. Because, you know, you've been executive in the past and you can help make shit happen. If there's a, an agreement on both sides, how that might work. Yeah, absolutely. Rod, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Lovely to talk to you and see you soon. I look forward to it very much and it's been simply a delight to be here. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.